The text for this morning is Luke chapter 2, the verses 41 through 52. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, so this is Jesus, of course, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. After the sermon, we will respond to the proclamation of the gospel with Psalm 119, stanzas 64 and 66. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a genre of literature, and it's called fan fiction. And in this genre, people who especially enjoyed a certain work of literature, they take it upon themselves to write additional stories about the characters and the settings that the original author had developed. And it appears that there's fan fiction for just about every book or movie that has ever been popular. There's even fan fiction about Jesus. Now, it's not called that. It's called something else. There are fictional stories of Jesus in historical writings like the infancy gospel of Thomas, where the writer tries to fill in the gaps of Jesus' life that aren't covered by the canonical books of the Bible, the books that we have. In this false gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, there are stories of Jesus' childhood, stories where he used his divine power in questionable ways. And we see Joseph 
how he is portrayed as the earthly father of Jesus and, and all of the things that he did in his interaction with, with the Son of God. And of course, we receive these stories as false. Whatever kernels of truth might be contained in them are completely polluted by the blasphemous portrayal of a mischievous and, and a dangerously powerful boy. We don't have stories of Jesus' youth in the Gospels. Why? Why don't we? Well, it's because the full account of Jesus' youth is not necessary for our salvation. God has given us his inspired word, his word which contains the account of the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah who was sent by God in order to redeem his people. Everything that has been recorded for us has been recorded for that purpose. So that when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we might believe and we might have life in his name. And as Luke says in, in chapter 1, verse 4, these things were written so that we might know the certainty of what we have been taught. And included in these accounts in the, of the life of Jesus, included in these accounts is just a sliver of time in the youth of Jesus Christ, about 10 days or so in the life of the boy Jesus. We have his birth narrative, and we have his public ministry, and then we have what we have in our text, the days, the few days surrounding the Passover feast when Jesus was 12 years old. And this is sufficient. This contributes to our necessary knowledge of Jesus Christ. What was necessary for him to do in order for us to be saved? In our text, we gain an understanding of Jesus' own awareness, his own awareness of his mission, and we learn how necessary this self-awareness was for our salvation. And so our theme for this morning is, young Jesus understands that he must submit. And we'll see two aspects. First, that he must submit to his heavenly father. And secondly, that he must submit to his earthly parents. Jesus understands that he must submit to his heavenly father. So, let's get into the background, the setting of our text here. Verse 41, every year Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And right away as we're reading this, we're clued into the, to the devotion of Jesus' earthly parents, their devotion to the Lord. Now, women... Technically, we're not required to go. Only the men were required. But we read that Mary and Joseph went every single year. And we also see that they exceed other expectations that, um, that surrounded this festival. People coming to Jerusalem for the feast typically stayed for one or two days. But Joseph and Mary appeared to go for the entire Passover week. This is an enormous commitment 
a commitment to be away from your livelihood and your daily affairs for the week of the feast plus the travel time getting there and back. It's a big sacrifice to make. So now Jesus is 12 years old and this may be Jesus' very first time going to the Passover. It was typical that a Jewish boy would go to Jerusalem the year before his bar mitzvah. This is when a boy would become a son of the law, that a son of the command. That's literally what bar mitzvah means, son of the command. So this might have been his first time in the temple. So, so the Jewish boys and girls would go in their 13, on their 13th year, but then they would go the previous year to become a little bit familiar with it. So this might have been Jesus' very first time going to the Passover feast. And this would have been his first time then in the temple, in his father's house. We read in verses 34 and, or sorry, 43 and 40, through 45, Joseph and Mary discover after the Passover that he's not with them for the journey home. So this is after the week of the feast. And there must have been a panic during that journey home. I don't doubt that there are possibly one or two sets of parents here who may have left a child at church for a little while thinking they were in a different car or with a different family. Now, we're not to have the impression here that Joseph and Mary were neglectful parents. Of course not. There, there are a number of explanations for why each one would think that Joseph was safe and sound elsewhere in their traveling company. We don't have to get too much into that. We can talk about that after church, if you like. But at any rate, the first day out, after leaving Jerusalem, they travel for about a day, and they realize that he's not with them. And so they travel back, which takes the entire next day, and then finally, on the third day, after three days, they find him in the temple. So he has been in Jerusalem, 12 years old, completely by himself in the temple, learning for three days. And they find him sitting with the teachers of Israel, listening to them and asking them questions. This is verse 46. And the insight that this 12-year-old Jesus displays is completely staggering to everyone. Think about the marvel of this. Who's 12 years old here? This is like you, a 12-year-old, making a visit to the seminary in Hamilton, in Ontario, and sitting in the faculty lounge with the professors, Dr. Smith and DeVisser, and Vinralti, and Vinvleek, and Divisor, and you're asking them questions, theological questions. You're asking serious questions about the most difficult things that are in the Bible. And maybe you're even stumping the professors. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answer. So not only was 
this 12-year-old Jesus listening, and he was asking them questions, but these teachers of Israel were also asking him questions too, testing his knowledge, and it says they were amazed at his understanding. This word, the word that we have there for understanding, it, it, it means that he showed the ability at such a young age to get to the very heart of the subject, whatever it was they were talking about. He was able to identify the most important question of the matter. If you can solve that central idea, well, then the rest will fall into place. And this is a sign of extreme intelligence, really sophisticated thinking. Jesus knows God's word. And perhaps this, too, is an indication of the devotion of Joseph and Mary in the ways of God. They have been teaching God's word to Jesus. So they find him there, and they're absolutely amazed at what they see, the way that he's interacting with the foremost of Israel's teachers. But at the same time, they are parents. Joseph and Mary are. They are parents. Mary says in verse 48, son or child, why did you do this to us? You know, today she might say, how could you? How could you do this to us? We have been worried sick looking for you. And Jesus replies, and this is the heart of the message here. Jesus replies, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know, mom, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, before we unpack that, in case you're thinking about this right now, no, Jesus was not disrespectful toward his parents in answering in this way. We'll see, we'll see that more in the second point, his submission to, to Jesus and his parents. But I just wanted to point that out right now before we got into Jesus' response. So Jesus replies, you should know this, mom and dad. You should know this. What did Gabriel tell you about who I am? What did the shepherds tell you about what they saw the night of my birth? Mary had locked those things away in her heart, and we read at the end of our section that she does this again, but right here she has somehow set this aside, and she has been concerned as a concerned mother. Jesus says to her, you should know that it is necessary for me to be here. And that's the main point. It is necessary for me to be in my Father's house. Jesus is submitting to his Father's will by seeking the understanding of his Father's will. This is his obedience and his submission to God, learning what God's purpose is in sending him. This is why he's asking these questions of the teachers. This is so critical for our salvation. Think about that. It is critical for our salvation that Jesus was in the temple asking questions about himself. Jesus knows it is necessary for me to be here so that I can understand all of the other things 
that are necessary for me to do. This is the very first time that we see this really special word in the Gospel of Luke. It is necessary. Day. It is necessary. God, or Jesus uses this word constantly to teach his followers about the nature of his work. Luke 4, verse 43, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns, for that is what I was sent to do. Luke 9, verse 22, it is necessary, that same word, necessary, for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Luke 12, verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you what is necessary for you to say in the spread of, of the gospel. Luke 13, verse 16, there was a certain woman that was bound, and it was necessary for Jesus to release her on the Sabbath day. 17, verse 25, necessary for Christ to suffer. 24, verse 7, necessary for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and to rise again. Finally, 24 verse 44, Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it is necessary for them to be fulfilled. This is a really important concept in the gospel of Luke. All of these things were necessary for Christ. They were all of the things that he had been specifically sent by the Father to do. Why? so that we might have salvation. These things were necessary for our salvation. Jesus had to gain an understanding of these things or he wouldn't have known to fulfill them. If he didn't fulfill these things, then what? Then what? Then there is no salvation for us. Salvation is not possible for us. Why is this little passage here, a few days in the adolescence of Jesus Christ, why is this included in the gospel? Because we see here the, the obedience, the submission of our Lord Jesus Christ to the will of his Father. We see the Christ who emptied himself who humbled himself and became like one of us. The one who fulfilled all our obedience, all our righteousness. And this work that he did, it started already in his youth. He was faithful in seeking out what God's plan was for him and ultimately for us. His obedience to his father was critical for our salvation. Number one, his obedience, his obedience to his father was the pursuit of his understanding. I just mentioned this slightly a, a, a few moments ago. His obedience was the pursuit of his understanding, knowing the will of him who sent him and delighting to do that will. 
The fact that he came to understand what was necessary for him to do, that was what brought about his sacrifice. He didn't avoid what he knew, what he understood he was supposed to undergo. But we read that he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. And he secured our salvation by doing what he knew he was supposed to do. What an astonishing willingness to undergo those things for us. So that's the first aspect of his obedience. And the second was that it was necessary, his obedience was necessary so that we might appear righteous before God. All of his obedience is transferred to our account with God so that we can stand before God on the day of judgment. And when we stand there, we know we can have confidence that God is going to say to us, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. None of us deserves to be told that by God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus Christ had to be completely obedient to his heavenly father because we're not. He had to be perfectly obedient so that he would qualify to be our mediator. Our mediator has to be true man, righteous man, and true God. What a glorious message in this passage. We have salvation. Our sins can be forgiven because Jesus loved his Father, because Jesus knew that it was necessary for him to be in his Father's house. He faithfully learned the ways of, of God. He faithfully sought out wisdom, the wisdom of God. As we read in 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ became for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Christ Jesus is wisdom personified. And this is why we're singing so much from Psalm 119 this morning, extolling the wonder of the ways of God, singing about the excellence of his instruction. Through Jesus Christ, we are able to receive this instruction from God, and we're able by the power of the Holy Spirit to implement this into our lives. And the great the great fulfillment of, of this is not only that salvation is able to come to us, salvation is able to be given to us, his people, but that we, his people, we might be a blessing through Christ for the world. Christ has made us his imitators, his disciples, and he gives us his spirit so, so that we are able to know the ways of God. We are able to have the wisdom of Christ. We are able to shine out in this way in the world. Our wisdom from God is something that should be prized. It's something that should be impressive in this world. Something desired by the world. And that's what we read in Micah 4. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. That's from the church. 
the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We are living this reality right now. This is all a fruit of the work of Jesus Christ. This is a fruit of his obedience. God's instruction, his beautiful instruction, flows out of the church and it gives life to the world. The church is the place from where God sends forth his blessing. God's glory is revealed today. And we confess, we confess, we admit that none of us has sought the wisdom of God like we should seek the wisdom of God. We haven't been as hungry and as thirsty as we should be. We should have hunger and thirst to know the will of God for our lives. But the gospel here is that even though every single one of us has failed in this, Jesus Christ didn't fail. He was perfect. He fully kept all of this obedience for our sake. And he gives this benefit to us in pure grace. And he gives us new hearts. He gives us new hearts that are able to seek, his, to seek God's will. So, so you are encouraged. You are encouraged today to take hold of the benefits that Jesus Christ has won for you by his own obedience and to seek after it with your whole heart. Study the word of God. Feast on his word. Sit under the preaching of his word. Divide the word of truth in your Bible studies and let, let the knowledge of God permeate all your conversation with each other. Do you understand what is necessary for you to do in this life? Do you understand the will of God for your life? By the power of Christ who lives in you, seek the kingdom of God with your whole heart. Submit to God your Father and all things that are necessary for you will be added to you. Come to our second point. Christ Jesus submits to his earthly parents. <clears throat> we might recall some instances where we have a little bit of trouble, a little bit of difficulty wrapping our heads around the way that, that Jesus relates to his earthly parents. So, for example, the way that Jesus answers Mary in our text, we might think for a second, ah, that seems a little bit iffy. Should a 12-year-old boy be speaking to his mom like that? Or in, in John, when, when Mary asked him to do something about the wine at the wedding in Cana, and, and Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Of course, Jesus is a mature adult by that time, so it's not exactly the same, but it seems like Jesus often rebukes his own mother. Now, first of all, we can, we can take this as a fundamental principle 
that Jesus did not disrespect or disobey his earthly parents sinfully. Jesus was completely without sin. If Jesus was not completely without sin, then we have no mediator. We have no salvation. So we can take this as a first principle that however Jesus treated his parents, we can say that he did it perfectly. He did it flawlessly. Jesus was completely without sin, and yet we read in verse 51 that he went back to the Nazareth with his parents and he was obedient to them. So he was, he was completely sinless, but at the same time he obeyed his parents perfectly. And that can, you know, grind in our minds a little bit um, because he couldn't have, you know, followed incorrect instruction from his parents and then been told to sin and then um, you understand the, the difficulty in there. As we confess in our catechism, part of honoring and loving those, part of honoring and loving those in authority over us is having patience with their weaknesses and their shortcomings since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. So whatever God commands for us, whatever God commands for his people, this is the fifth commandment, this is also required of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to fulfill every commandment of God. Now sometimes we might want to justify a certain amount of disobedience, however minor, by pointing out the shortcoming of whoever it is that's in authority over us. You know, we don't have to listen to this politician we don't have to listen to this whoever it is because of this gigantic flaw that this person has. Now, if anybody would have been able to use that argument, it would have been Jesus Christ. But no, he submitted himself perfectly to his parents. God placed Joseph and Mary over him, and he was obedient to that. It was God's will to place him with these imperfect human beings in order to contribute to his human development, development that was necessary for him as the one who was sent of God. And Jesus submitted not only to Joseph and Mary, but as we see in our text, he also held the, the leaders of Israel in high honor, asking them questions, knowing that they too, despite their shortcomings, were to be respected because of the authority that God had given them. And we can note that in our text, the leaders are called teachers. And this is actually the only time in Luke that they're called that. Except for this one time, this one use of teachers here for the leaders of Israel, Luke only uses that word for Jesus himself. Or in a couple instances when Jesus says some saying about the nature of teachers in general. After chapter 2, these leaders of Israel are shown a lot more negatively. They are the Pharisees. They are the lawyers. They are the scribes. All the ones who misuse the word of God and who later reject Jesus Christ, the one sent of God. But at this point, Jesus submits to them. 
He asks them questions. And it is God's will to lead Jesus to a greater understanding of his identity and his mission through their knowledge, despite their weaknesses. And we have to understand how critical this was for our salvation. Again, Jesus had to obey every commandment perfectly, or he would have been disqualified as our mediator. If Jesus had dishonored Joseph or Mary, or if Jesus had not showed proper submission, even to Israel's sinful leaders, no salvation is possible. But Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly, and his obedience is credited to us. Thank God for Jesus' humility and his obedience. And of course, the same submission is required of us. Believe it or not, I used to be a teenager, and there were always reasons for me to not listen to my parents. Teenagers complain about the same things that I complained about when I was a teenager, that our parents cannot understand what is important to us. The world is different from when our parents were teenagers, and so they can't understand what's necessary to be able to navigate the social world. And since they don't understand, then, of course, we can make, make it so that their rules don't apply to us, right? But it is God's will. It is God's will to have your parents in authority over you, to be your instructors. And you have to have patience with them. You have to talk to them and make them understand what, what is in your life. It's God's will to govern you by their hands. And the same goes for us older ones. We submit to the authorities that God himself has established. Our elders, for example. Our elders who have just as many weaknesses as we do. We listen to their instruction, their, their exhortation to come to church, their exhortation to be busy seeking an understanding of the will of God. God gives us these beautiful gifts for our benefit. Overseers who direct us to the Lord, who steer us in God's ways. God gives his wisdom to us in these ways so that we can continue the work that he has given the church to do proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, gathering the bride of Christ. What a glorious mission that God has for the world. A mission, a mission that he sent his son for. That he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again, and that he would rule over heaven and earth until he comes again with glory. Amen.